Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. This season consists of both in-person library events as well as virtual facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. That will include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. So with that, I will turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Hello, hello. Welcome to Club Book with Layla Motley. Um, before I introduce tonight's guest properly, please allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing her to us. Club Book um, is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Dakota County Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering booksellers, Red Balloon Bookshop. That said, I wanna quickly just introduce myself. My name is Tish Jones. I am a poet, educator, organizer, founder and executive director of True Art Speaks, an arts and culture organization based here in St. Paul, Minnesota. I am so excited to be in conversation with this next brilliant, brilliant writer. Um, so let's get on to our featured event. Layla Motley is the pin behind Nightcrawling, one of the most anticipated and best-reviewed fiction releases of 2022. Set in the author's native Oakland, where the town at, what's up? Peace to everybody in the town. Um, Oakland, California, this searing debut welcomes readers into the world of 17-year-old Kiara Johnson. After her rent skyrockets, Kiara turns to sex work to stave off homelessness. She soon finds herself in the crosshairs of a far-reaching scandal and active investigation into the conduct of the Oakland Police Department. In a rave review, the New Yorker lauds, careful not to portray Kiera as a victim, Motley shows us the pleasures of family, friendship, and love. The result is an intimate portrait of a young black woman searching for autonomy and fulfillment in a society designed to deny her both. Oprah Winfrey named Nightcrawling the summer pick for Oprah's Book Club 2.0. And the New York Times bestseller has also been nominated for the 2022 Booker Prize. Motley accomplished all of this as a debut author who published her first novel before the age of 20. Um, after a short talk by our guests and some initial questions for me, we'll have time for audience Q&A. Um, simply drop your questions in the comment thread here on Facebook and our tech manager will route them to me. If you'd prefer to contribute a question a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. Uh, without any further ado, I'm super excited to get into this conversation about this wonderful work with Layla. Welcome. Thanks for having me. This is, is going to be fun. Yeah, I'm super excited. Um, would love to just hear some more about you. S set the stage. Let folks know who you are. Yeah, um, I mean, you said so much of it. Um, I was almost 17. I, I turned 17 a month after I started writing Nightcrawling. Um, and I, I think it's important context partially because the reason I, I wanted to write this book is I wanted to, to tell a story um, from a teenage Black girl's perspective that was nuanced and complex and approached it without judgment. Um, and that her her adolescence, Kiara's adolescence, is not um, the preempt to the story, but um, is the story itself. And 
that we're able to kind of get inside of her head and um, approach teenage Black girls from a perspective that I think we often aren't given the opportunity to, um, to see that her internal world is this, this really complex place and that, um, you know, what the world expects and demands of, of her is, is where her limitations come. Um, and then part of that in, in telling the story of this, this teenage Black girl, Kiara, I, I also wanted to kind of explore vulnerability because I think so rarely do we get to see Black girls as, as people who are fragile and as people who, um, who can be hurt. And, um, and so I wanted to center that as, as just kind of the, the heart of this book. Um, and I, I was born and raised in Oakland. I still live in Oakland. It's, it's my place. Um, and in 2016, this case broke that I think outside of the Bay, very few people have, have heard of, but um, it was basically where a, a young woman who was a minor at the time was sexually abused by various members of various police departments. And um, and this this kind of case rarely gets out. And after attempts to cover it up when it did, um, what happened and what I kind of witnessed was the conversation around um, this case was primarily about um, the, the kind of concern that this would damage the trust between the community and the police department. And I remember just being so confused because I was like, what, what foundation of trust um, do we have, especially in Oakland, which is like a, a place that has historically had a really tumultuous um, relationship to policing. And at the same time, like, what about this girl um, and also what about, you know, so many other girls and women who experience this kind of thing and, um, and never have their stories, you know, kind of reach that, that type of visibility. Um, because I think inherent in police sexual violence is this recognition that girls, particularly girls of color, are, um, are also kind of victims and victimized by this um this culture of control and and the way that um policing uh, attempts to administer it um and so I kind of came back to this idea of of police sexual violence and the use of this case as an um, inspiration for kind of the the situation that Kiara ends up in and a mirror of the vulnerability of Black girls. Um, and I wanted to do something with it that would feel kind of different from the way that we're often um, put in relationship to police violence and brutality. And so instead of, you know, often getting to hear way more about the life of the police officers involved, seeing, you know, family photos and kind of a, a spectrum of who these people are. We don't even know their names. We know them only by their badge numbers. Um, and we know the name of every Black person in this book. And so that was kind of an important way to flip um, the script on that. Um, and then also to have this conversation about um, while we're, we're in this public discourse that's become even more mainstream um, about police violence, how do we continue to look to the, the exclusion of Black women and girls, even in movements founded and organized by Black women? Um, and so I guess I'll read a short excerpt that is specifically about that. Um, the book is set in 2015. And so think like the context of um, Freddie Gray's murder and you know this is years past Trayvon Martin. Um, so that's where we're gonna start. On the short walk from the exit to the waiting police car, I hear the sound of megaphones, drums and chants. A few blocks down the road, Hundreds, if not thousands of people march toward the building, their voices a thick chorus, a call and response with Freddie Gray's name sharp in the center. And I watch Harrison's head lower as we reach the car. I climb in the back and look out the window. I wonder if they'll ever chant about the women too. 
and not just the ones murdered, but the particular brutality of a gun barrel to a head. The women with no edges laid, with matted hair and drooping eyes, and no one filming to say it happened, only a mouth and some scars. Harrison pulls the car away, and I wonder if he's thinking the same thing, how maybe they didn't need to force a confession out of me, because who would have cared anyway? But he is probably thinking about getting away from the protesters, about how wrong they are to hate him, about the sacrifices he makes to protect the people of this city. He's probably thinking that the cost of one life or 1,000 is a price he's willing to pay, that the ravaging of a sad girl with frizzy three-month-old braids is a price he would happily pay for this car, this gun, this power. Um, and I think that throughout this thread, we also get to kind of see the legacy of, of resistance. Um, and, and what was really important to me is that we, we experience Oakland as a character um, through the book. And that's partially a love letter to, to my home, but also I think we often only hear about Oakland in the context of, of this strange binary, um, either a city that is, that is violent, crime-ridden, one of the you know, top most um, dangerous cities in, in the country, or we hear about it from like, a, it's up and coming, it's getting better, you should come move here, um, which is so, so closely tied to displacement and, and kind of the, um, the movement from a historically Black city into one that's you know, constantly um, pushing out its Black uh, people. And so I wanted to allow Oakland to be nuanced and allow it to, to be more than either of those. Um, and so a huge part of the book was, was allowing um, Kiara and her world to kind of be formed around um, this idea of Oakland as, as a place of, of revolution and also um, a, a place you can love and that can still harm you and, um, and a vibrant city and one with so many different layers. Um, yeah, so I guess that's, that's part um, that'll be hopefully explained in this short passage about Oakland too. Um, Kiara and her best friend Ale are walking down the streets of Oakland. Ale loops her arm around my shoulders and pulls me in, lifting her skateboard into the air and sighing. Ain't it beautiful? She shouts into the open air and I twist my head around to take it all in. The construction still lines the alley, bang banging wood into more wood and I swear it's like the city is spiraling around us. Skyline popping up a glorious portrait of windows and wheels that don't gotta be as large as they are. Ale's arm around me makes me wanna skip, lift my knees to the sky, the way we sway together. Oakland doesn't operate on a grid. We wind here, the streets pulling us closer to the bay, to where salt melts with street and bikes turn to trucks that moan and thrust forward at every light. Then they push us back toward the buildings where shouts lie in the perimeter of the sidewalks. And with Ale here, I don't bother trying to decipher what they're saying or who they're saying it to. Just let the noises scatter like chunks of asphalt up the road. I find my favorite murals, new swirls added to the backgrounds, bordered in tags. I think I think that's enough of an intro to, to Nightcrawling. Yeah. That was, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. You, you you touched on so many things that came up for me just when reading this book. So I actually I lived in Oakland um, for about a year. Hey. Yeah, working with um, Youth Speaks. So yeah, also um, Megan yeah. yeah, no doubt. Youth, uh, Oakland Youth Poet Laureate. So shout mm -hmm. out to you. I'm glad to be in conversation <laughs> with you. Um, I actually want to sort of start in that in that sort of history and place based world, um, because the case the case that you're you're referencing, it broke in 2016, and you began writing this this novel a few years ago as well. So I'm also like wondering how much sort of, how much time did you spend researching and how important was that to mm -hmm. you in terms of informing your process? 
I love research um, and I also think there's just like such a, a fine line in research um, where it's important to me that I have kind of the context to be able to create this authentic world, but I also constantly recognize that it's fiction and that the people that I, I have, you know, the obligation to, to kind of respect and understand the most are my characters. Um, and that they always feel true. And so I do this balance um, where I, I research enough that I know I can like invest fully in the characters and understand them. And then I pause, I write, and then in revisions, I do like a lot more research and kind of infuse that throughout. And so with, with this book, I, um, I had kind of like a foundational knowledge um, because I'm from Oakland and because I, I, you know, kind of watched this in real time. And so um, I had that foundation. I did a little more research. I read transcripts of the investigation and then I, um, I kind of just leaned into Kiara and kind of figuring out how um, she could be her own person and how to, to build this, this world that she lives in. Um, and then in revisions, I kind of went back in and made sure that um, that it felt as real as possible, especially because it does deal with like kind of legal proceedings. Um, and so I had to do a lot of research around that. I love that. I love that. There's I feel like there are so many, you know, traditions and pathways that you're walking. And as there's this this fine line around you know celebrating and naming your age right because I don't want mm -hmm. to age us at all and it's like you've accomplished so many wonderful things at such a young age I really want to celebrate that and I also think it's wonderful to have you as a model for other young writers you know mm -hmm. specifically right now when we just had Amanda Gorman in the position that she was in we're seeing you as a celebrated mm -hmm. you know decorated author at such a young age and I'm wondering about you know who your influences are. So one of the things that came up for me in terms of being in a tradition is thinking about Gwendolyn Brooks and what a lot of scholars have called, you know, verse journalism with your foundation as a poet and what she did with We Real Cool and the research there or the Chicago Defender sends Amanda Little Rock. I'm sort of wondering, two-part mm. question, like who your influences are and just the role that you want your work to play mm. in terms of that that bridge between fact, fiction? Mm -hmm. I love this question. Um, I mean, I think the first thing I thought of was Sadia Hartman and her work in, in kind of expanding the archive and like blending this idea of narrative and um, and and archive and and nonfiction and um, and how like kind of in, in terms of black history there's um, there's this need, this necessity to to kind of blend um, imagination with what we think of as like hard truth and um, and so I definitely think in some ways this book falls in line with that idea of um, of kind of creating history through fiction um, and cementing history through fiction. Um, and so I, I definitely feel like it's in some ways in conversation with that. I mean, there are, there are some other books that I think it, it has, you know, some connections to. I mean, They're There by Tommy Orange um, is another Oakland book. So in some ways, I think it's, it's close to that. Um, I've heard, I actually really love this one, The Street by Anne Petrie. Um, someone said that to me and I was like, I have never thought about that, but I think that's actually a really um, cool way to think about it because in, in many ways that has kind of the feeling of what does it mean to like literally be in, in conversation with a street. Um, and, and obviously it's a classic, it's, and it's beautiful. Um, and so I think that that's another one. A lot of books I love and a lot of authors that I love and have learned from, I find that like my work isn't necessarily very close to, um, but I also think that that's uh, kind of the beauty of figuring out what your voice is in fiction is like not making it like something just because you might love that. That's beautiful. I love I love that answer and the opportunity just in in that journey around growth. Um, black girls, 
you know, mm-hmm. in your respect. I'm, I'm just trying to pick up little things you're saying and drive it forward because, you know, I'm also thinking about how important it is, you know, to your point, to create history through fiction and why specifically telling this story about Black girls the way that you did. You were so intentional with Kiera and the way you told her story, you, you made her a whole person. There weren't just fragments. She wasn't just the choice that she was making, just what happened to her. She had love, had joy, had, you know. So can, yeah. you, can you say more about why you chose to write her story in that way and why that was so important? I mean, that's kind of what, what this book is and what it does is like, for me, it felt like we needed to be able to to look at a headline in a in a more expansive way you know to be able to see a person as as their their whole being um and a huge part of that is is not depriving them of a spectrum of experiences and so a lot of this book was kind of finding the balance of um of the cruelty of the world and what it does to her but also um, the way that as people we kind of have to continue to find and, and pursue all of these other things like love and joy and even like moments of grief um, are also important to, to being a human and there's kind of no way to exist without, um, without wanting and dreaming and hoping for more and experiencing more and so um, that became a huge part of, of how I constructed the story is that we have these um, these kind of acts done to her and then we have her expression of of agency and autonomy um, often through things like you know playing basketball or the pool or her relationships with Trevor Ale um, and all of all of that kind of ended up being so core to um, figuring out who she was and, and allowing the reader to to really get inside of her head um, and to to understand her complexities and also like a huge part of um, writing Kiara was continually reminding the reader of how young she was. And I think that that um, for me, when people are like, oh, well, I, like there were times where I felt like how young you were as a writer. I was like, well, whether it's me as the writer or Kiara as the character, that is exactly the point. Um, because black girls aren't afforded the ability to be young. And we see the ways in which the, the external world around Kiara perceives her as, as someone much older than she is and, and what that does to her. And so then for us to get to be in her head and come back to like, she's young, she's a child um, is, is entirely uh, the basis of, of what this book is and, and the mission that I kind of came in there with. I absolutely love that. I think about, you know, intersections and multiple marginalized identities and place. And you've talked about, you know, this work and certain aspects of how you wrote it being a love letter to Oakland. You know, it very much feels like a love letter and a breath of fresh air for black girls. Um, So I'm wondering, like, you know, for not just the characters that you are responsible to, but with the intention around, you know, young, black girls Mm -hmm. in the town you know or in towns like the town right like what do you what do you want them to to hold to walk away with um, Mm -hmm. after reading this book I mean I think a, a huge part of it is um is kind of just like a being able to reflect on um on the the lack of fairness in our worlds um, cause I think it is so normalized for black girls to take on everything and to suddenly like be the caretakers for everyone in your life. And suddenly all the men are like, where's my dinner? And you're like, oh, well, let me make you dinner instead of going like, why do I have to make you dinner? Why is the expectation that I make you dinner? And I think part of what I wanted to do is like call into question those things by like getting to see them from a different viewpoint um, and even the extremity of Kiara's life. I think 
so many black girls experience this kind of um, imposition of a role they didn't ask for. And I know if when I was like 14, 15, I would have loved to, to be able to read a book that, that even allowed me to question the, the way I experienced the world and the way that I, I was kind of put, forced it into navigating it because I think that um, we should be allowed different options. And, um, and I think so often when we start to question it, people like shut us down and then we're like, oh, we shouldn't even acknowledge that this is happening because clearly uh, black men need our help and like we shouldn't be betraying them. And I think especially with sexual violence too, like that conversation around what we feel we owe to black men is so um, intertwined with a conversation about sexual violence in general. And so I, I hope that the, when this book, you know, gets in the hands of, of young black girls that they're afforded an option a lot more. That's beautiful. I'm going to ask, you know, another version of that question, because what I, what I also really appreciate about this book is that it's for, it's accessible to everyone. Mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think it, it does a wonderful job of humanizing black girls, right? Mm -hmm. And it's done with such great intention. So hats off to you for for that. Um, and so the question is, what do you want other people to know mm -hmm. about the town, black girls, et cetera, or to consider um, mm -hmm. as they're reading this work? Yeah. I mean, I think there there's a way in which everyone is complicit in the the harm of black girls and I, I think we so very rarely question um, what we could do for black women. And I, I mean, I know there were so many times when I was a teenager that I found myself in like very dangerous and precarious positions surrounded by so many other people that could have stepped in and did nothing. And I think that that is my hope that other people reading this book experience also all of the um the abandonment and neglect that had to happen in order for for this to continue on um and and i also honestly just hope that like we get to people invest in in kiara and who she is and that fiction kind of plays its role which is you know in allowing us to to learn to love characters as as people first and then kind of think about them in context of of our world and start to wonder like oh well how does this end up playing out in in my daily life um because i think that we so often distance ourselves from from kind of politics or um ideas of of disenfranchisement because it, it's theory at the end of the day when we talk about it in terms of concept um and fiction does this thing where it like lets us think about politics as purely an issue of people um which it is um but i think that we so often forget that and it becomes very hard to ignore when you learn to love somebody before you um, you kind of begin to think about the ways that um, that systems act upon their lives. That was a very poetic answer in response. Um, <laughs> I appreciate this. I'm going to lean into some of the some of the poetics and ask you how your your career and tenure as a poet influenced mm -hmm. and shaped your writing and what sort of uh, literary devices mm -hmm. or things showed up in this writing? I so rarely get to talk to other poets about this. Um, I I started as a poet and um, and I, I started as like a written poet. And for me at least, poetry um, feels very different depending on whether I'm uh, my intention is to perform it or to write it and, and kind of keep it for myself or keep it on the page. Um, and so I, I started with like kind of on the page poetry and I, I kind of stumbled into spoken word and 
Um, and I definitely found some footing there. I think it's the genre of poetry that is that is most made for and continually claimed by Black artists. And, um, and that made it feel like a very comfortable place for me um, while also pushing my boundaries of, um, of kind of being in front of an audience and having that very um, kind of there's no there's no time or distance between when you when you say your poetry you write your poetry and perform it and then when you receive the feedback on it and um and you can feel how it is translating to an audience and so I think that that honestly has helped me a lot with my uh fiction too is like the ability to think about the immediate impact on audience um, and to think about rhythm and and kind of sound first. Um, and then I also think like the transition for me felt like a relief um, because spoken word, you kind of give all of yourself um, and it can be exhausting. And I think we very rarely like talk about that. And I know so many um, poets who have left simply because we start to feel so far from it as, as a form of art, um, because so much of it is about performance. And, um, and so I did this kind of pivot from spoken word into kind of the opposite, which is novel writing um, and the ability to like have all of this space um, and to use all of this space and to not worry at all about how it would come across because I didn't think anyone was ever going to read Nightcrawling. I wrote it thinking I was just going to keep it to myself and I did for um, for a long time before anyone read it and the first people who read it were agents and so for me I, I felt like it was a break from being perceived um, and having my art kind of under this microscope um, and having to constantly deal with like, am I writing based on what I think people want to hear or based on what I want to say? And so that is, that's how I kind of did this pivot, but I was also writing fiction. Um, my first novel I wrote at 15, 14 and then my second at 15. And then this is my third and I wrote it at 17 mostly. Um, and I now am like kind of re-entering poetry and written poetry and figuring out um, what I actually like want to say and, and how, um, and like not simplifying it just so it could be more easily received, um, which is I think something that I, I kind of watched myself do in spoken word that I don't think you have to do, but I definitely think is there's like pressure to um, to kind of simplify the way that that people might be able to access you through um, through work that they're only ever going to hear. Um, yeah, so that's that's my little poetry journey. Yo, Layla, you just opened the door for another two and a half hours <laughs> on. I mean, I know you know, yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm over here testifying with the with the mic on mute, so I'm not interrupting you because you're really, <laughs> you know, there are some there are some nuances there, um, mm -hmm. and I really appreciate you speaking to them. And the edu the educator in me is really um, super interested in you as you know as a model, right, for folk who are in that in that similar position, thinking about you know life after slam. You know, mm -hmm. um, right and the relationship between the page and the stage and what other opportunities yeah. come up which leads me to sort of a um an audience question that i think is in the same vein of conversation and as an educator i want younger writers to know like can you talk a bit more about the process of this manuscript being picked up yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um there is so much gatekeeping and publishing and I knew literally nothing about how to get a book published and I tell people all the time when they're, they ask me how to do it I'm like I googled it and that is how I did this and um and that's that I followed google the whole way through and I think that um, it becomes a very different process if you have someone kind of leading you into it. I think we need to kind of create um, more scaffolding around that. 
especially for authors of color, um, because it, it is so hard to, to learn rules that no one even really talks about. Um, and I definitely found it a challenge, um, but I, I did do, use Google. Um, Google will tell you, you get an agent and then you your agent sells the book, basically. Um, and it is that simple and also so much more complicated than that. Um, and getting an agent is a tumultuous process that often ends up taking people 20 years to do. And I mean, I, I did it for way less time than that. And part of the reason is because I, um, I did a lot of revision before that. And part of the reason is because I ended up like a, doing a bit of a background why um, I applied to this program called Pitch Wars, which I, I think is over now. Um, but it, it generally is more for genre fiction, but um, I applied anyway because I had no idea. And it's one of the things that came up in the internet search. So um, what happened then is I got matched with a mentor when I got into the program and um, and she gave me a round of edits and then I, I did a, a big revision. And then there's like an agent showcase that's part of that, which did speed up the process, but it's basically querying, um, but you get to be at the top of the inbox. Um, so I went through the querying process and um, and I got a couple agent offers and agent, like then when I had an agent, there was more revision and then it's timing and it's luck and it's a lot of work. And um and I ended up selling at the very beginning of the pandemic. I sold in April, 2020, um, which was a very strange time in publishing and could have gone many different ways. And that's why I always say like timing is a huge part of it because if editors catch your book when they're like swamped and overwhelmed and like maybe have read 10 really heavy books and you wrote another one or have read like 10 more comedic books and then there yours is and it doesn't feel that different um timing is is a huge part of it and that's one thing that we have very little control over um and then you know all of the work before that I often tell people like if you're asking me how to get published before you write a book, like try to forget about it because it is going to make writing that book 10 times harder if you're thinking about publishing it. Um, and so a huge thing for me was like learning how to write a novel before I ever thought about publishing a novel, um, which is, I mean, why I, I wrote three books before I published one. I love that. It's for the culture. It's reminded it, just practice. Um, that's the first thing that came up is mm -hmm. no practice for real. It's so important, right? Mm -hmm. And you know the the intention and the time spent with craft. Um, so there's there's two questions. One is um, I'm actually going to ask this craft question first, which is like, how long have you been a writer? Like how much time have you put into this aspect of your identity and practice? So much time. And I often tell people like, I didn't do an MFA and I didn't like, I didn't graduate college. Um, and I didn't have, you know, 20 years of, of writing at five in the morning before I went to my day job. Um, but I did write pretty much every hour of my free time and non-free time for um, my whole life and so I started writing when I was six and I have journals full of poetry and then I wrote a, like lots of short stories from when I was like eight on um, and then when I was 14 I wrote my first novel and so um, I mean novels are hard to write and no one teaches you how to write them even in MFA programs they often don't actually help you write a long form book because it is a difficult thing to teach and there isn't um, a, like a protocol for how to do it necessarily um, and so I kind of taught myself through practice and it is such a commitment um, writing a book is it's so long um and I always like talk about it in terms of a long-term relationship especially if you're gonna 
publish it is like that's three to five years of your life um and so you have to love that thing and you have to be willing to work for that thing and there can be times where you really want to give up but you have to like continue to remember that you like committed to this and you believe in it and um and so that took practice for me and um and it took a lot of time and even in the past year I've written three and a half or four books um and that's like I mean hundreds if not thousands of hours um and like a lot of um kind of consistency and so I taught myself pretty early on how to sit down and write every day um and how to get things done and I think I'm kind of unlearning that now is like the balance between that and also like rest and allowing creativity to have more of a role in that. Um, because I think that uh, schedule and routine and consistency are important, but they're not the end all be all because you can produce a lot of work, but it's not always gonna be good if you're forcing yourself to do it every time. Good for you. I love that you uplifted rest. I do. I love that you uplifted balance. It's I love so that. Important. Yeah, you know, especially as we're talking about, you know, night crawling and the main character being this young black girl and the city and the trauma and systemic mm-hmm. violence and structural racism. Um, so I really I appreciate those things because that particular like Kiara needs that, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. I also think people ask me like, um, well, how to solve writer's block a lot. Mm-hmm. And I always say, like, if if you're blocked, you're probably tired and you probably need to rest. And it's the thing that no one wants to hear because it it, like it's counterintuitive. Um, But I at least feel like 90 percent of the time, if I'm not writing, it's because I'm so tired and I keep forcing myself into it. And I just need to, like, let it go and release and like kind of not think about my value in terms of my productivity. Let's go say that. That's a quote. Quote that. Put it somewhere. <laughs> Put it somewhere. It needs to be. Um, one of your readers wants to know if you have any advice on how to navigate the gatekeeper heavy space. Um, it's difficult because I think one thing that I've been grappling with is how to have kind of conversations around that even when other people in that space are not ready for those conversations um and when like you know we're trying to get our our work out there and and kind of are in need of um of playing the game um and at the same time like what if playing the game also sacrifices who you are as a person um and I, I don't really have a, a way to reconcile that at this moment, but I do think like finding community in it and finding other people who are like doing the same thing and um, and just like not kind of uh, pushing against the idea of the isolation that, uh, that this whole thing relies on, right? So um, when we kind of, combat the the idea that we're alone in it we start to learn about the way that it's working for everyone else and then um and then it's a lot easier to figure out where where the problems are and how to solve them and like the different places that people can come at it from um and also I think often we get targeted if we if we're the only ones speaking up in the room if we're the only ones breaking the silence and so um, having more than one person doing that always, I think, is helpful. Yes, let's talk about an allyship. Let's go. Yes, exactly. Thank yeah. you. Um, another reader is interested in knowing um, if any of your previous works, you mentioned two other novels, have oh, yeah, yeah. been published? Are they able to read? People love to ask me this. Um, I, I will consistently say that those books will literally never see the light of day. It's not going to happen. Um, and I think that that is absolutely for the best. 
they were practice novels for me and I did not know how to write a novel. And so a lot of them are like kind of this fumbling through how to keep 80,000 plus words going. Um, and I am considering rewriting one of them because I did appreciate the concept, but it would feel entirely different because I'm not the same writer as I was at 15. Yeah, no, they probably won't be. Good for you, good for you. So what is next for you? What does your future look like in writing and publishing? What do you see? I'm coming out with a poetry collection at some point probably in the next year-ish. Um, and so returning to that, and then I'm working on my next novel. Like I said, I've, I've written four this past year. Um, and a huge part of that is like anyone who's written a book knows and published that book knows that like the second is the hardest thing um, because there is this idea that people are actually reading and watching and um, and with Nightcrawling, like I, I did not think anyone was gonna read it and that was the most liberating experience for me. So um, kind of figuring out how to recreate those conditions has been a challenge, but um, the next book will probably, you know, be, be published in the next few years. And I, um, I think it'll feel like definitely the, the growth and the development of three plus years um, between when I wrote Nightcrawling and then this new book. Um, and at the same time, I think it, it'll have some of the same themes in a very different way, in a very different context too. That's awesome, thank you. We have another question from a reader. Um, that is, what was the hardest part of Nightcrawling to write? Mm, the hardest part to write? Um, I think the hardest part was figuring out how to construct Marcus's character, which is Kiara's brother, in a way that would um, would allow us to feel all of the anger at him that you know we rightfully should feel and also understand you know kind of the the conditioning of of black boys and the way that he has been raised um to believe that his survival is dependent on on being you know successful and famous and um and producing something of value to the world and um, and how that ends up leading him to, you know, abandon his sister, and um, and we can feel as, you know, angry and rageful as we we need to about that, um, while still being able to to understand it, even if um, if we, you know, are are at the end of the day on Kiara's side because we should be because it's her it's her world and it's her head, and um, and so the, it was a challenge for me because as the author I knew that. Um, but kind of communicating it in the book through these like small scenes we get to experience him in always through Kiara's perspective was a challenge and took a lot of revising and a lot of um, writing scenes and then taking them out and kind of figuring out how I could um, construct him through like these moments we get to experience of his childhood um, but not through like going into his perspective because I think a huge part of this is getting to see men through Kiara's eyes um, when we often see men through men's eyes. Say that, say that. Um, so what then came the easiest to you? Um, the easiest was anything with Trevor really. Um, I think the the experience of writing Trevor felt, I mean, it felt really close to me partially because at the time I was writing Nightcrawling, I was working in preschools. And so I, um, I wrote parts of it, you know, during nap time while the kids were sleeping. And, um, and anyone who like spends a lot of time with kids knows that they like have this ability to bring you into the present. Um, and, and also I think for Kiara and for me to like, to allow you to experience um, childhood through them and to experience, you know, um, what, what it is to be young and, um, and also to like want that and not be able to, to grasp it outside of this little person. Um, and so for Kiara, I think she ends up um, both remothering him or attempting to, and also um, 
trying to to experience her own um childhood through him and it was um it was definitely a more enjoyable thing for me to write um and it also provided like relief after um all of the moments where Kiara has to to kind of put up various fronts and um to keep herself safe and with Trevor she's just existing that was beautiful it was very grounding yeah just making me totally reflect I think um so another question from a reader is what what do you feel most proud of that you put into this book mm. um I think that my at 17 my ability to like access the experience of being in limbo and um and being in between it all and um and kind of figuring that out and how to vocalize that through this character um definitely felt like like a representation of me as a writer and a person at that time um and in some ways this was was kind of a, a memorial to my childhood and, and adolescence and a way for me to like make sense of it um, through this character. That makes me curious, Layla, because you're, you're grappling with such a big story in Nightcrawling and you're honoring such a, a real experience by, by telling this story in Nightcrawling. Mm -hmm. um, how did you stay well mm -hmm. given the conditions that brought about this story for you? Mm -hmm. um, honestly, I think a huge part of writing this was for me to let myself fully sink into Kiara's perspective, which meant that like there were, I, I was not really caring for myself in the way that um, I get this question sometimes, mostly from other Black women going like, how did you care for yourself during this? And I think as a writer, I kind of had to go, well, if I took care of myself during this, I don't think I'd be able to fully represent Kiara's experience because she's she doesn't have the space to care for herself um and in some ways it was kind of like method acting in that I I mean I also wrote this book very much there's so many scenes that were cut by um day to day with Kiara and experiencing her life in in kind of like all of its totality um and that meant that I also kind of went through every day with her um I did a very quick drafting process with this it was like two and a half months uh and part of that is because I wanted to just be with her in it um so that is that's mainly what um what I did and then I kind of worried about um the processing of it all after because um because so much of it is about being in the moment with Kiara. And I think as the reader, we also are with her there, you know, um, and that that's part of why it's in this present first person too, is that we are not experiencing this in retrospect. It is not the way that she um, is processing it post all of it. It is just her, her present moment. Um, and so that's how I lived it too, yeah. That's great. Thank you. Um, we have a question that just came in from a reader. They would like to know, and they're saying, I'm going to just read it verbatim. Pardon the ignorant but well-intentioned question. How does an author go about asking other authors for jacket quotes? Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's such an uncomfortable experience. And I think in in so many ways, like I don't know why we're still doing blurbs um, because it's really awkward and um and also anxiety inducing for the author and then it is challenging for for the the person you're asking for the quote because they get like millions you know so many books um and so many requests and we you know no one has enough time for that um and so i i mean i think part of it is like using your network and um and trying to see like do you have like a distant connection to anyone um because it's always easier to 
to hear that as the person being requested from um, when you like have some kind of personal tie into it and to like put it on the top of their priority list. Um, and then it's also easier to get, get that contact. Um, but I honestly think like a personal note ends up being the most important thing is like just showing whoever you're asking the blurb for from um that you you know who they are and like you're asking for it from them for a specific reason and not just um because they're a person to ask because I think that that makes it that makes it all the more real and urgent for for the other author yeah but it's challenging it's uh <laughs> it really does I don't know why we keep doing it mm -hmm. um I'm gonna also just this is a question from a reader. This reader would like to know, how did the Oprah connection come about? <laughs> um, uh, I have a publicist through my uh, publisher and most most people do. And their pu the publisher, like they go out and they try to get this book in everyone's hands, right? So that's their entire job. And um and book clubs specifically they happen pretty far in advance I think a lot of people don't know that I didn't know that um so you know like a year before the book comes out when the the last version is done your publicist is like trying to get it in the hands of whoever gets it in the hands of any of these book club um people and that process can, you know, not ever end up coming anything, you know, because they get hundreds and thousands of these requests. And, um, and so part of it is how pushy your publisher is and your publicist. And then um, uh, another part of it is just like how they respond, kind of similar to editors is, um, it can be a timing thing. And, um, and I guess what ended up happening is the, the person who like is right, um, basically the Oprah book club main person, Lee Haber is the person who reads all of these books um, and then passes the ones that she likes on to, you know, a bunch of other people. And then eventually um, Oprah would get it and, then she makes her decision entirely on her own. Um, and I I still to this day don't know why she chose it, but um, I'm very grateful. And I found out about six months before the book came out. So um, it's it's very much in advance. And, um, and there's a lot of people that that book goes through before it gets to. Congratulations, it's very well deserved. Um, another reader would like to know if you, if by chance you had the opportunity to meet Oprah as a result of being. I had two Zooms with Oprah. Um, I did not meet her in person, um, but I, I did get to talk to her for, for like, I don't know, about an hour, yeah. That's awesome, that's awesome. Um, I'm gonna ask you uh, in, our, in our last few minutes here, who are you currently reading? Mm. Um, right now I'm reading Native Son by Richard Wright. Um, yeah, and I, I recently read The Trees by Percival Everett, which was like probably one of my favorite books of the year. Incredible book. Um, and yeah, I think that those are the most... No, I also read Giovanni's Room, um, which has been on my list for a long time, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the last few books I read. Yeah. Those are phenomenal books. So, <laughs> I mean, if you if you caught those sound bites, definitely write write those down. Layla, it has been absolutely wonderful being able to speak with you. Um, I, I'm so I'm in awe of you. I'm inspired by you. I'm super proud of you. I think that what you are doing for your peers, for for everyone who gets their hands on this book Nightcrawling um, is phenomenal, but also for young writers, for, for young poets, um, for young fiction writers, folk who are really coming to find their voice, thinking about craft, thinking about discipline, thinking about process. I'm just, I'm so happy to have spent this time with you and I'm so grateful for what you are offering to the world um, and challenging us to think about 
um, in terms of humanizing and really considering, you know, black girls and black women as whole beings. I appreciate your work so much and I thank you for your time. Thank you. This was amazing. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you. That wraps up our Dakota County Library event with Layla Motley. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Maria Myungok Lee. Lee is a treasured voice in Korean American literature. Her latest novel, The Evening Hero, is a time-jumping narrative about a talented obstetrician who immigrates to rural Minnesota after the Korean War in pursuit of the American dream. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.